How are you doing there? Just a quickie before we start. On the Apple podcast, why don't you double click on David McWilliams Plus? It's right there when you open the podcast. You get ad free, you unlock early access. Just double click and away you go. David McWilliams Plus, you get this pure and simple. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by Acast. How are you doing there? It is podcast time. Uh, life is good here. We are back in the HQ, as John refers to as the Orange Lodge. Which is not, but it's a little bit orange, it must be said. But only in colour, not in spirit. And of course, the poor old Orangies are going to be very upset this week. Because it was revealed this week that there are now more Catholics than Protestants in Absolutely. Northern Ireland. So the Orange Lodge is feeling particularly <laughs> embattled. Uh, flags are going to go up. Oh, quick, that quick, light the bonfire. Oh, I like the, bo- like the bony. like the bony on the 11th night. Anyway, we will discuss that maybe at another stage. In fact, we did discuss it on Tuesday, again, in the context of what we were discussing about the UK itself. But now we want to keep with the international theme and we want to go to Russia. And the reason is the mobilisation called up last week by Putin, is seen by many, many people as the last, last kick of a dying ass, the last move of a regime that has run out of options. But those options that they still have could be incredibly dangerous for all of us. And that is the fear. And we're going to go to an old mate of mine, Sasha Kabanovsky, who lives in Berlin, where there are many thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of Russians in exile, in effect. They've been there since the Gorbachev stroke Yeltsin years, and it's a huge Russian community. We've spent many nights chatting myself and Sasha over the years about what's going on in Russia. I can think of no better man to discuss this moment in Russian history than Sasha. So we're going to go straight to Berlin. We're going to talk to Sasha about the next move. Is it the end of empire? If it is, how does it play out? Now we're going to go and we're going to go to Berlin. Berlin has probably, I know actually hasn't probably, Berlin has the biggest expatriate Russian community in Europe. An extraordinary city where you will actually hear in certain parts of Berlin, you will hear Russian as a matter of course. There's a huge, huge Russian population there. I happen to know a few of them and one of them is on the line. He is Sasha Kabanovsky. Sasha, how are you? Good to see you. Well, I've been better, but uh, lovely to see you and uh, great to uh, to have this opportunity to chat now, and listen, catch up. Yeah, Sasha, like the last time we were talking was very late at night in Berlin and we were talking, this was before the war, and we were talking about Russia, we were talking about Ukraine, we were talking about how you see the whole thing play out. Neither of us had any sense, you might have had a sense that this was coming. I certainly didn't have a sense. This is about two and a half years ago, we were having a chat about two years ago. Before we talk about Russia... 
Give me a sense. Your background is quite typical for many, many people who are now Russian, Ukrainian from the former Soviet Union. So I was born in uh, in Kiev. I grew up in the States. My mother's family still lives in Kiev. My wife is Russian. I went back to Moscow in 97, lived there until 2014, met my wife in Moscow, uh, married her, had four children in Moscow. Now my wife's family is in Moscow currently. And there are quite a number of families just like ours who go back generations spanning the border between Russia and Ukraine. So what is happening now is, is, a, is a true unmitigated tragedy. And tell me, so you've got family in Ukraine, your wife's got family in Moscow, you're talking constantly. Give me a sense of the relationship between these two countries, the, 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 the way in which these two countries are intertwined. Because I think sometimes it's very easy in a war situation to say there's Russians on one side, there's Ukrainians on the other side. But this idea that the links are incredibly close. Uh well, I think that uh, the links have, uh, over the last six months, the links have uh, have become less close. And I think that there has never been a divide as wide as, as it is uh, currently. And, and, and quite honestly, I don't think there's a way back. I don't think that there's a way back to the way that things were or the relationships. I mean, even after the fall of the Soviet Union, uh, the, the countries were separate, but in essence, the border was more a formality than anything that anyone really paid attention to, except for political reasons. However, after February 23rd, 24th, um, this sense of separation has become palpable and, and, and irreversible. And so there's no going back. We're living in a, in, a, in a completely new world. And the question is, what opportunities and threats exist in this new world? And how do we reasonably assess what, what, what can happen? Now, I just want to say, last night I was talking to our mutual friend, Anastasia, in Berlin about something completely different, but she said about the mobilization in Russia. So she's talking, she's talking to her friends. She's also talking to her friends who have kids of like 18, 19, 20 in Moscow. She says the mobilization is real. Is it? Well, it's real. I have been doing nothing but uh, for the last two days, consoling friends, uh, consoling friends of uh, my children. Obviously, they have friends they've kept in touch with who... Uh, our school friends, everyone is basically on the move. Everyone's in a panic. People are are getting into cars, driving towards Georgia. They're driving towards Finland. I, I'm not sure if the borders with Finland are still open. The former president of Mongolia announced that uh, Mongolia is open to receive Russians who refuse to serve in the military. This has made the war real. And this basically just shows the death knell uh, of the Putin regime. This, this, this really, if nothing else, shows how disconnected the regime had become from the overall population. And uh, nothing brings this more palpably to the consciousness of the people in, in, on the streets of Moscow and St. Petersburg than the threat. And, and it's not the threat. Uh, 100%. If, if your son goes to, to war he will be facing the best army in Europe at this point in time. Battle-hardened, well-equipped, well-led, motivated. This is World War II all over again for Ukraine. And if they get on the battlefield, the first 100,000, the first wave of this mobilization, as Russians call it, mobilizatsia, which is the preparation of, of burial sites. Wow, that's what the Russians are calling it. 
Yeah, it's not the mobilization, it's the mogilization, mogilization from the word mogila, which is a, a cemetery plot. So this is the burial rites. This is this is what Russians are talking this about. This is this is the burial rites. And if you remember two and a half years ago when we were discussing this uh, this situation in Russia, I kept making the point that this is a regime that's that's built on lies. At a certain point in time, those lies come to haunt you. And this is the time to pay the piper. And uh, the, the economy is non-existent. The future is is bleak. What do you do? What What's the future for the next generation? Even if the war is over, even if it ends tomorrow, what is there left to really sort of think about and, and hope for? And so you're seeing, I don't know, I, I, millions is probably not underestimating what, what the numbers are in terms of people trying to get up. Yeah, panicking. I was watching, I was looking at the, the price of flights you know, to Yerevan, the price of flights to Istanbul, anywhere that there's an avenue out of Russia, you have, as you said, it could, it could well be millions of people trying to get out. But Well, the shocking price I saw was 1, 1,075,000 rubles to Dubai, which... How much is that in euros? Rate. So divide that by 60, so 20,000. Wow. Jeez. Okay, okay. So basically, that, that, that so, so people are trying to get out. This is the get last, a nice meal this, on that flight. That's very true. This is the last throw of the dice for this regime, you think. I mean, you were saying to me two years ago, look, hold on a second. They've blown 30 years of oil revenue. There's very little innovation in, in, in certain areas. There's no future for people. This is before the war. Let's talk about, you know, what this regime has done to Russia, to the opportunities that existed, even potentially in 1997, 98, 99. The regime, is, and I express my own opinion, but uh, as, far as, as far as I can tell, the regime is, is a swarm of locusts. So if the cupboard was half full at the fall of, of communism, and if the communists, for you, you may agree or disagree with the economic policies and, and the global vision, but at the same time, they left something behind. There was an infrastructure, heavy industry. There was something to rebuild. What Putin's regime has done is it's left nothing. The, the economy is, is non-existent. The worst thing that they've done, they've encouraged the most brilliant, the youngest, the, the people who any nation would love to have. They've basically destroyed their opportunity. There, there are 5 million Russians immigrated during the Putin's regime from 2000 to 2022. Okay, not including yeah. 22. And that migration of Russians, highly educated, totaled 5 million out of Russia. So those people that basically, those are the people that did not see opportunities for themselves in the future in a relatively, well, what was painted as a prosperous and, and Russia with a bright future under the leadership of this regime. Since the beginning of the war, estimates, I was checking the numbers yesterday and estimated, I think it was as high as 5 million. Have left. Left over the last six months. So it might be less, but even if it's a million over the last six months. And what this and what he has done over the last two days is, is he's put the final nail in the coffin. And with no hope, with destitution, and if anyone has traveled to Russia, and, and just as yourself, I mean, uh, most have traveled to Moscow and St. Petersburg and maybe one or two large cities. Moscow and St. Petersburg uh, are, are impressive. They're, they're, they're beautiful, fantastic architecture, history, and very light. But that's not Russia. 
that's 34 million people. Everything else, everything outside, you, you, you drive 60 kilometers out of, outside of Moscow or St. Petersburg, and, and you see destitution that hasn't changed since World War II. 25% of the population, and I think Boris Johnson used this quote uh, to, to great effect, don't have indoor plumbing. You know, this regime is built on cynicism. They truck out veterans every May 9th to Red Square. But these veterans, they live in hovels. They've given everything to this country in World War II, and they have absolutely nothing. And so you can't build a future on nothing. And this is what they've destroyed. They've destroyed hope. They've destroyed the future. And what I'm, I, I'm, I'm afraid what we're seeing is the, well, I, I wrote, I wrote I, one of my favorite uh, quotes from Hemingway is, you know, how do you go bankrupt first very slowly and then very quickly? And I believe that we're in the very quickly phase of, of Russia not going bankrupt, but Russia ceasing to exist as an empire, as a country, and quite, quite frankly, maybe even more deeply than that. Explain this to me, because this is this is what we talked about a couple of years ago, and I was I was fascinated because I was sitting opposite you and I was listening to you, and you had this very profound sense of what was likely to happen. This is before the war. This is just as events were playing out. So explain that to me. How does this end? How does this this potential catastrophe unfold in Russia? You know, in terms of what you were saying, the empire, the country, even the feeding of the people themselves. Well, unfortunately, I cannot picture a good ending. I, I, I don't see a scenario with a good ending. I see scenarios with uh, more or less bad endings and, and, and horrible endings. Okay, well, let's, let's look at those ones. So the problem with Russia is if you look at the statistics for average lifespan, and if you look at the average lifespan of the average Russian male, I think it's uh, currently down to 65, 64. So the average Russian man, statistically, he will not reach his retirement age. It's extraordinary. The level of alcoholism, all you have to do is just uh, sign on to one of these uh, telegram channels. Telegrams, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which document the mobilization and the types of people that this is attracting and that are being rounded up. They're in a drunken stupor. And so the problem, as I see it, is that I don't want to overgeneralize. It's, 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 it's a very dangerous game to play. But, but there's a real sense that the nation has exhausted itself. It's just, you know, the, the, this was the last big push, the last big chance where Russia had and Russians had to build a new country, a new vision. And they, they screwed it up. Ukraine is no great uh, achiever over the last uh, 20 years. No, absolutely and, and not. And the level of corruption, the level of corruption in Ukraine rivals any place else in the world. But having said that, no president in Ukraine has served more than two terms. Yeah, and I've always said that even the very act of voting in a comedian as president reflects a very vibrant democracy. Because what you're saying is anybody can turn up and put themselves before the people and the elections are relatively uncorrupt and you have a vibrancy of debate and discussion. But I, I take your point about the corruption, the corruption I've, when I was in Kiev, late 80s, all the way through the early noughties, there was an extraordinary sense that the country was also being pilfered by its own oligarch class. And that was very, very enmeshed with the political class. So, you know, as you said, this is, this is, this is, this is no shining light 
in terms of corruption. However, they do have a vibrant dissenting culture. And of course, that's come to be probably embodied in Zelensky as an individual. Well, you cannot build a democracy where none existed overnight. And it's a painful process and, and there will be excesses. But there has to be a will. And, and the people have to be willing to pay a price. And the Russians were not willing to pay a price. See, Navalny, and I'm sorry about this haphazard sort of jumping around, uh, okay. but the topic, is, the topic is very, very big and, and, and very emotional, and it's hard to cover in, in, in a short period of time. But since so many things have been happening. But the first thing I want to underscore, which, which is important, which is important in the context of this war, the Zelensky is just, not just a comedian. He's a Jew. Okay. And that's a very important fact because this entire premise of this war is based on fighting Nazism. Now, the cynicism, I, I can't imagine another government that would be cynical enough to, to wage a war of denazification against the country that elected the first Jewish president. Yeah, no, it's extraordinary. And they've managed to do this. And it seems like they've convinced themselves that they're believing their own lies. And, and it's like they're the only people left in the room talking because no one's paying any more attention. And, and, and that's, that's bygone. So that, that is very important. And, and the other thing is that, that Ukraine has gotten a foundation story. And just look at how the 250 Azov heroes were welcomed in Ukraine when they, with their release. The entire nation yeah. celebrated. You didn't see anything, anything similar to this in Russia with, with the release of their 50 prisoners or whatever else. Because the people just don't care anymore. There, there is an existential feeling that they're exhausted. They're, they, they know that, that they're living a lie. And at this point in time, the hard truth has, has, has basically hit them in the face. And it's a panic. And, and there's no more dangerous situation than a, than a dying empire in a panic with lots of nuclear weapons. Well, that is, that's the terrifying prospect, particularly with the president, who doesn't only hint at it, actually says, I'm not bluffing. I will use these things. Or I could use these <laughs> well, things. Well, you play poker, right? Quite badly. Well, so do I. But, 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 but you know, Shakespeare said, me thinks that does protest too much. Yeah. These people are not, they don't have a death wish and, and they don't have the courage. One thing that is absolutely true is, is that they're not courageous and, and they're bullies. They've bullied this country for 22 years. And the only reason why they've gotten away with it is because, unfortunately, Russia has a history of servility stemming from a history of, of serfdom that, in essence, well, formally was, was, was done away with in 1863, but in reality, the disdain for human life in, in Russia and, and the Russian culture has maintained this servile serf class to this day. And in Russia, it's impossible for the Western mind to understand because we simply do not treat people this way in Western culture. In Russia, in 2020, if you ride around in a Rolls Royce and if you have a fat bank account, you can basically treat anyone below you as genetic garbage. People ran over children. You could kill someone and you would get away scot-free. You would not face legal consequences. And that's, that's not a society that, that's long for this world. No, I agree with you. I, I completely agree with you. And yet, the last time we were chatting, you actually sent me some lines of poetry. This very, very famous was a Tichchev idea. Explain that to me and why there is something deep in that poem and why Russians believe it or do they still believe it? Actually, what, what is the poem again? 
Because I remember we were talking. You said you said you you said you said read this. You 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 mean you mean uh, I don't remember the exactly because we exchanged so much poetry and 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 quotations. Um, the one the one that's most applicable, I think, in this day and age is uh, it's not a poetry. It's 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 basically a saying, which is "Umom Rasiyu Nipanyat Rasiyu Mojno Tolka Verit." And so the, the meaning of it is that you can't understand Russia with the mind. The only thing that you can do is yeah. believe in Russia. Yeah, you just have to believe in her. In her, yes. And that that encapsulates the, the Russian attitude completely. There's an irony to it. So it's, it's self-deprecating from one perspective, but also something that speaks deeply. And, and, you know, Russians are really, really proud that despite everything, despite our own shortcomings, despite, you know, the poor leadership, despite the fact that we don't run the country very well, we always come out on top. And it's the belief. Yeah. You know, I mean, I don't want to overstate this, but in very large part, this is due to the role of orthodoxy. It's it's a long topic. Mm -hmm. and uh, I've, I've been giving this a lot of thought, but there's a mysticism to Russia. There's this uh, uh, sort of unbridled belief in the fact that everything will just turn out all right. So, you know, you drive you drive at 200 kilometers on a, on a road that's not made for it. And, you know, Russians will say, Pranislo. so, you know, it, you'll, you'll, you'll sort of survive and get by. But the, the Irish expression is, it'll be grand. Yeah, well, it's grand because, because life in Russia is geared towards survival and not, and not prosperity. Sasha, just explain to me, you were telling me the last time we chatted about the huge, the vastness. You were talking about, look, Siberia is a problem. There's, there's a moment where the, the central forces of Russia cannot hold the place together. The resource-rich parts of Russia are beyond the Urals. They're very much Asiatics. The Russian Far East is very beyond China. How does this play out? How does this, you know, how does the whole thing end? We're beginning to see this, right? So the first thing that happened was Azerbaijan attacked uh, Armenia. The second thing, Kyrgyzia and Tajikistan uh, started to, to fight in an area where now you have an independent Afghanistan and, and the resurgent Taliban and, and uh, Islamic uh, fundamentalism. I don't know what's happening with China, but you have you know 1.2 billion Chinese sitting right across the border, not just sitting. I mean, they've been actively moving people into the borderlands of Russia. So the entire Siberian, well, well how do you say, it? the entire area of Siberia, which by the way, Russia conquered from China, up to the uh, beginning of the 18th century. So when Putin makes these historical arguments about what geography tells us and history tells us about where people should be, there's a compelling one that China can certainly drag out about getting some territorial historical payback. And it's populated by just 30 million people. So there's only 30 million Russians in Siberia? Yes. So from the Urals to Vladivostok. So this huge, like what, five time zones? Five time zones, yes. Five time zones inhabited by 30 million people. And the infrastructure is, nothing's been invested in infrastructure. I'm not sure, but I don't think that you can actually drive from Moscow to Vladivostok in a car on a paved road all the way. And you have a billion Chinese people living down south. So you have 30 million Russians, a billion Chinese. A billion Chinese, of course. And strange things have been coming out of China over the last week. So I'm sort of interested and in, in constantly uh, messaging back and forth with my friends in Hong Kong, trying to figure out what's going on. But it's like um, 
there there are threats all over the place. So Kadyrov, one one of the interesting things actually, which I think went uh, unnoticed in the West, was that Kadyrov, uh, who is the head of Chechnya, how did he call himself, Putin's uh, foot soldier? Yeah. So he announced that that the demobilization will not be carried out in in Chechnya, which is basically if you if you want to send a message to the Kremlin that uh, the game is over. That's pretty much the way that you do it, because uh, understanding the stakes of of mobilization for for Putin and his regime to come out and say that uh, we've overfilled our quotas uh, in the first phase of the war and we're not going to do this uh, in the second phase of the war is, well, it's treasons. Yeah. Dagestan is in an uproar. Tatarstan has everything that a functioning country can can hope for and, and and an indigenous population and the history of independence from Russia before the 15th century. So, and recognizing the fact that Russia actually does not have a military because let's face it, Russia, it does not have a military. It has, it has a bunch of generals dressed in, in, in glitzy sort of uh, autocratic uniforms. It, it has missiles of, well, dubious sort of quality. And it cannot fight a war and it cannot uh, exert its power. And, and it has a large police presence, which it's not a fighting force. It's, it's, a, it's a force of oppression, suppression. They, they, they're great at, at using batons against, against peaceful demonstrators, but they, they're not a military force. And they're, I think, about two million of them. So if you can't feed this machine of oppression... You, you can't hold this thing together. There, there are way too many external factors, internal pressures that, that are beginning to crack the regime and to crack the country. And, and it's going to be painful. It's, it's going to be painful. And I hope that the West has a strategy for how to mitigate this situation. And actually, I think that it's obvious that there's a rift between Putin and, and the Ministry of Defense. And if one had to make a bet on who can get rid of Putin and keep a semblance of stability within the country and, and, and make sure that, that at least the military arsenal that is still functioning can, can be held in check, it's the military. And then ironically, right, the military is the only part of the system that actually can make the argument and can negotiate a reasonable settlement because the military can just say, look, we're the military, right? You're the military. We're the military. You were told to go into Afghanistan, whether you liked it or not, you went in, you know, we're not basically entitled to, to, to make big political decisions. We have to, to carry out the orders up until the point where we see that, you know, and this point has come. And so there, there could be a negotiation for a post-Putin sort of solution and some semblance of control. Just before we go, you just mentioned the West, right? The last time Russia imploded, the Soviet Union imploded, the West did not have a plan, okay? It happened very, very quickly, late 80s, early 90s, rather than a massive martial aid to Russia, rather than the West coming in and supporting, whether it was Gorbachev initially, there was this idea that, well, let's just pick over the pieces of this corpse as it rots, in our midst. And that's what the West did. It didn't actually come in and, and have this big plan. I'm not hearing anything from Washington and our, the European Union, which has the finance, might not have the actual muscle, but has the finance to do. To what extent then does the, the post-Putin world, because I think you're right, I think, I think we're looking into the post-Putin world, does it end up another vacuum in Russia and then Russians leave and then Russian money leaves and, and, you, and you have another, a sort of a, a rinse and repeat of what happened 25 years ago? 
no, this is this is not a rinse and repeat of, of 25 years ago. This is something completely different. It's something more profound. It's something that's much more, I don't want to over-dramatize, but it is not. And it it is it is the end of the empire. Russia, for, for all intents and purposes, they were able to, to sort of maintain a more or less a historic Russian empire. Yes, you know, the, some countries left, but the core remained intact. Yeah. This is this is the core. And this is, you know, the United Kingdom, the British Empire in 46, 47, 48. Uh, but the problem is, whereas the British Empire was an overseas empire and countries could sort of gain their independence without actually, you know, a dramatic impact on, on, the, on the home country. This is a land empire, right? Very intertwined. And when that collapses, the ramifications are, are significantly more profound. And, I, you know, I think trying to project what happens afterwards is, is definitely above my pay grade. But I, um, I, I, I certainly hope that uh, someone in Washington, you know, I don't have that much faith in the European Union at this point in time, trying to take the lead on, on this situation because they've been behind. Uh, but the throughout. Americans, the Americans. But the Americans, in fact, I, I read somewhere, I think about a week ago, that a top-ranked U.S. general came to NATO with precisely that agenda, which is to try to figure out, prepare for the potential dissolution of, of Russia. And I think you need to, like after World War II, right? You you, you have yeah. to you have to find it, the most rational thing. Maybe it's unpalatable, but the most rational thing is you you have to find the, the remaining sort of center of power. And try to prop that up because you can't afford to to have this thing just uh, collapse under its own weight. It, it has to be a controlled controlled process. And you need a sort of a Conrad Adenauer, you know, to actually lead the the new country and say, okay, this is a new chapter. But I'm German. I'm one of you. I feel what we went through, and we can rebuild. Which is precisely what the Americans found in Adenauer after Hitler. Yes, but. Uh, once again, the cupboard is, is bare and you can't use people from the old regime uh, the, the, because the failure is so massive and so total. Navalny is in jail, despite the fact that, that you know, he, he's very brave. He's done tremendous work on uncovering corruption. Unfortunately, it fell on deaf ears, uh, which says something about the Russian population in general. Can you imagine someone who day after day in the UK or Ireland or the US uh, documents uh, unparalleled levels of corruption and it does not resonate at all within the general population so it's 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 a sign but he has never been able to build that broad-based support to i think offer sort of a reasonable alternative as a potential leader for russia in the future maybe it's possible but i just don't think that he has that charisma or the the support of the general population maybe we'll get lucky and and, and something comes up some hero, I need a hero. <laughs> so I didn't think we would end with a quote from Bonnie Tyler, which is, you know, we're talking Russian poetry, history, whatever. And we, yeah. end, we end in, I think it is Swansea, South Wales, mid-1980s. I'm holding out for a hero, John. Big hair, the big, whole lot. Big hair, the whole lot. Listen, Sasha, that was like a fantastic <laughs> discussion. Really, really wonderful I will see you hopefully in the face to face. We'll have a couple of drinks, have a couple of chats, but we will definitely come back to this issue because this is a moving story and this thing could be over in weeks or months. Or days. Or days. Sasha, listen, take care. Thank you, gentlemen. Have a nice day. Thank you. 
Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hi, I'm Dori Shafrir. And I'm Kate Spencer. And we are the hosts of Forever 35. And today, we're talking about Club Med, the best all-inclusive getaway for families. Today, Club Med has nearly 70 resorts worldwide, from beachside resorts in the Caribbean and Mexico, to magical locations in the Maldives and Morocco, to ski resorts in the mountains from Canada to the Alps. Between their all-inclusive family programming, wellness offerings, land and water sports, and their French heritage-inspired food and drink offerings, Club Med is the best way to elevate your family getaway, no matter which location you're at. To learn more, visit clubmed.us. Do you know, it's it absolutely fascinating stuff. Yeah, and, and emotional stuff if you're involved. That's the really thing. Really emotional. And he and he was he was getting really emotional. We're like you've you four kids born in Russia. They're Russian. Your wife's Russian. You're you're Ukrainian. I mean, yeah. you've got businesses in Russia, you've got friends in Russia. We've seen the whole thing unravel. But what I find really interesting is his take on the regime itself and how, as he said, how disconnected it is from the people and the old Russian vets living in hovels and the poverty. Have been rolled out on the, on the, on the 9th of, of May, yeah. But, but also, what I was thinking there as well, you know, a, a few weeks ago, there was a big meeting in Uzbekistan from all in the... Samarkand. Yes, yeah. The ancient city of Samarkand. It's actually on my bucket list as a place to go. We'll be but doing what, a podcast from Samarkand before you know it. <laughs> I hope so, Mac. I hope so. But what I found really interesting was, like, not only is he disconnected from the people of Russia, but he's becoming more and more disconnected from his so-called mates. Like, yeah, yeah. Modi had a go at him. Saying, Modi said, this is not the time for war, didn't he? Yeah, Something he said, like it, what he kind of said, will you hurry up and finish this yoke, more yeah. or less. Well, you know the thing about politics, John, all this, it's like when you look through history, think about, not politics, think about power. Mm. Power is all about momentum, Right. If you're going forward and you're the powerful guy, yeah. loads and loads of people say, okay, I'll, I'll back this guy. But if yours seems to be going backwards, and this is what Modi is. So Modi was, they, they were all on side in February, China yes, and, yeah. and India. But this is exactly it. And now yeah. it's like, hold on a second, who's the next guy? It's long live the king sort of idea. Who's, yeah, who's, who's yeah. The, the king is dead, long live the king. Who's the next guy? Yeah. And I think that's, you're absolutely right that what you have is an atrophying of this sort of tacit alliance around Russia. Mm. And that's a clear signal that the Indians are saying, okay, all right, you're the revolving door, you're gone, who's the next geezer, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so I think, I think you're absolutely right that once that falls away, 
that isolates the regime. But the problem with a regime like this, as Sasha was saying, is the more isolated they are, maybe the more desperate they become. Well, it's like a cornered rat. And, you know, anybody who's... who's and, and you know to... that Putin, Putin is referred to as rat boy. Do you know that? <laughs> yeah, one of the very interesting... Uh, I, I didn't know, we didn't expect to the, the There is a biography of Putin hagiography yeah. uh, of Putin written about how fantastic he is, right? And he tells a story. Putin himself tells a story. And John Sweeney, the British journalist, has mm. a book called Criminal in the Kremlin. And one of the chapters is called Rat Boy. And it's actually a story that Putin tells about his youth. So Putin's born incredibly poor in St. Petersburg, yeah. Leningrad, okay? The family are living with lots of other Russian families sharing a loo, all that sort of stuff. Really, really poor. He talks about one day that sharing one... Sharing a loo? Sharing, yeah, that's the, 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 yeah, the yeah, yeah. toilet between 20 families, you know? And yeah, yeah, that's... I've, I've been in those flats in Leningrad. I've been in big, big Soviet flats. They're pretty, pretty... Oh, my yeah. God, the toilet. Don't all, go, go anyway, anyway, move on. Anyway, yeah, yeah, yeah. but Putin says about when they were kids that they were used to chase rats. They were little kids, you know? That's what they did. It was like yeah. a, a game, you know? Let's chase a rat today. And he was talking about he cornered a rat and a rat went for him. Putin tells that story. So it's very interesting. Right. You know, and he's kind of almost identifying is this is what a rat will do. Yeah. So uh, Sweeney calls him rat boy, but this is part of the mythology about Putin. Yeah. But I mean, so yeah, they are cornered. But what I found interesting was this notion that what Sasha was talking about is the essence of Russia, the soul of Russia, the heart of Russia, the yeah. mysteriousness of Russia, the myth of Russia. He says he thinks is now atrophying that that really held them together for for a long time. But and also when he was talking about that, also it's the element of religion and the, the Orthodox, Orthodox Church, yeah, 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 and the patriarch. I don't know if you've seen recently with the mobilization, the patriarch was talking about and lecturing, saying if you go and fight for the motherland and you die in Ukraine, you will go straight to heaven. It's same wow. kind of stuff that. ISIS leaders and Taliban leaders say to their boys, you know? That's and extraordinary. I, 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 had, I had no doubt. It's, well, it's, I mean, it kind of dovetails. I mean, Sasha was linking orthodoxy with this idea of mystical religion. Yeah. That, you know, I actually quite like mystical Catholicism, I've decided. Okay. I'm actually going to get into it. My, no, no, no. Okay, we'll, we'll talk no, about no, that in another time. But mystical, you know, you've, you've got mystical sides of religion, you know, which are which are not this, the rules and regulations, but they're, yeah. they're actual. It's the it's the mystery. It's the it's it's the fairy tale of it. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And again, if you come back to you know the Tuchev stuff we were talking about, Fyodor Tuchev, who is a Russian poet. Right. Yeah. It's a, this, this idea that Sasha was talking was that piece of poetry that he sent me, which is recited by Russian kids. I learned this as well as a bit of Pushkin's poetry, like a bit of Pushkin's love poetry. Yeah. Yeah, show I used to love her. It's like it's it's the poet, you know the poets I used to love her is the great Pushkin poetry. Yeah. And of course, what do we do in, in, in Ireland? The I used to love her once. Yeah. A <laughs> long, long time ago. What was that name? What was that name? That, that was again? Uh, from uh, Chum. What were they called? The Saw Doctors. Saw Doctors. Yeah. Listen to this quote, right? Toychev. You cannot grasp Russia with your mind, John, or judge her by any common measure. Russia is one of a special kind. You can only believe in her. That is Fedor Toychev, yeah. one of the greats of Russian poetry. But they learned that in school. And what they're basically saying is... 
That's like, it's like faith. It's like, it's like, it's like what we, yeah, in our catechism. <laughs> exactly. It's like Catholicism, except yeah. the problem is, John, with Russia, it's Catholicism with nukes. Now, remember, the 3rd to the 6th of November, Kilkenomics in Kilkenny, the world's only economics and stand-up comedy festival. And John, tickets have been absolutely flying. That's brilliant. Yeah. No, That's I mean, fantastic. It, it means people really want to come back out. All the stuff you hear in the podcast, all the voices, all your old favourites. We have many, many of our podcast legends coming in from all over the world to join us. Have a look at the lineup, kilkenomics.com. Get your tickets and we'll see you in Kilkenny. Subtle results, still you, but with fewer lines. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulties swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia Gravis or Lambert-Eden syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com. In manufacturing, you need to automate intelligently to compete effectively, but not all automation solutions are created equally. AGVs and AMRs driven by Bluebotics Ant technology offer robust, accurate performance and native interoperability because your material handling can be smarter. Visit antdriven.com. That's antdriven.com to learn more.